Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be doing a special episode which is a compilation of clips which I had made while I was attending the 75th Locarno Film Festival. I've attended the Locarno Film Festival which is uh, in the canton of Ticino in Switzerland for several years now. It is uh, a great European film festival. It's had it kind of specializes, I think, in the more art house side of things, although they do have big red carpet stars. So, for instance, opening the festival was Bullet Train, starring Brad Pitt, and it doesn't get much bigger than that. The film got roundly bashed when it came out, because it came out more or less the same time that it was showing at Locarno. Uh, personally, I thought the Brad Pitt character was funny enough for, for it to be an entertaining but ultimately forgettable watch. There were two or three really big laughs in it, but there were so many moments which just dragged and so many scenes in which periphery characters were given sort of sub-par Tarantino-esque sort of dialogue scenes that it, it just it just didn't work for me. And um, I know of so many plot holes, and I know you're not supposed to care about plot holes in this sort of shoot 'em up John Wick style, Atomic Blonde style, violent gun opera. But um, but yeah, you, you know when they become so glaring that you you you're asking yourself, and when, and when the story and the action itself is so boring that you end up thinking about that and talking about that, then. Um, it changes the whole point, I guess. I did see some great films, though. Uh, Stone Turtle, uh, excellent uh, film, f which sort of plays out as a Revengers tragedy plus Groundhog Day magic, witchcraft, bit of the Wicker Man thrown in there, all about an island uh, where the women take revenge on the men who arrive there and one specific woman uh, with a backstory that only is revealed gradually. Um, really good, really fantastic film really interesting um arnold is a model student was a thai movie about the bad student movement uh very interesting film because it's very sort of political and very plugged into the current moment and yet it also takes from the movement 
which is mainly its inspiration, uh, a movement which was born through protesting arbitrary, whimsical, and quite cruel punishments in the education system and linked also to the corruption of that that uh, system. It takes from that movement a, a sense of wry, sarcastic humour. So although it's a political film, it's kind of a light film as well. And that's uh, that's something to be to be cherished, I think. Uh, and very funny. Just, you know, really makes me laugh, at, made me laugh at several points. Then there was a film um, called I Have Electric Dreams, which was a stunning film directed by a Belgian director, but uh, set and starring a cast from Costa Rica, and this was a film about a father and a daughter and their and their troubled relationship following a divorce, uh, and it's just so touching, so moving. It goes and and in a way, it's a story that you've seen a thousand times. It's a situation you've you that has had no end of um, explorations in the world of cinema. I mean, we already have After Sun, which is coming out on movie, which I saw can which follows a similar examination of a daughter-father relationship. But this film just manages to be so um, surprising. It just moves in such surprising directions. And the story uh, takes turns that, although unexpected, are in no way inconsistent with the characters that it's, uh, that, that it's talking about. So that's a really good one. I hope that comes out. I hope that gets a screening. I mean, that's slightly the problem with Locarno is sometimes you'll watch a lot of films and then you, you might not see them again, if not on Mubi or Festival Scope or one of those streaming services. But hopefully some of these will make, make it into theatrical distribution as well. Um, okay, so I talked to a bunch of journalists and one director, Tom Hardiman, the director of Medusa Deluxe, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and and uh, and yeah, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. You can like, subscribe, all the rest of it if you enjoy the episode. But before that, enjoy the conversations from Locarno. Hello, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic, and this is Writers on Film in Locarno. And here I am with Leonardo Goy. Hello, Leo. Hey, how are you doing? Lovely to be here. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, Leo, what are you doing in Locarno? Who are you writing for? So I'm here with the film stage. This is my fifth year in Locarno. Um, I was, actually, believe it or not, Locarno is where my life changed, because back in 2017, and we still didn't know each other. I was invited to um, to join the Critics Academy here, and it was truly a life-changing experience for me because I met a number of people I work for and write for now, and uh, including Mubi and the film stage. And now I'm here with them. Really, uh, it's the fifth year. I'm very, very happy, and uh, looking forward to the films. It's only day two, so yeah, absolutely. Early. I was just going to say, have you seen anything that you particularly liked or? I have only seen three, John, so sorry. Okay. Uh, but um, there's one film in Cineasti del Presente, which I really enjoyed, and that was Arnold is a model student, um, a Thai film, first feature by a director who's, who's actually been part of the um, Director's Academy here. Okay, so like you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, homegrown talent. No, do you know what? I mean, like, honestly, one of the things I really, really love about this festival is how homely and cozy it feels and there's so many phenomenal opportunities for young critics young directors young screenwriters to come here and truly become part of the Locarno family and he's he's a success story really yeah that's brilliant and it's a lot more sort of approachable and accessible than say Cannes or Venice or some of the bigger the bigger festivals yeah and especially I mean like I know how much you travel the festival circuit and I'm sure you'll agree. I mean, this is just, it's a completely different rhythm. You do have terrific films and a number of lineups and so much to see, but it's just a different pace. You know, you can enjoy the city, you can enjoy the festival. There's so many phenomenal retrospectives, including this one this year about Douglas Sirk. And it's just the one festival where you know you can actually squeeze in some time to, you know, venture beyond the official lineups and actually, you know, take a look at what's 
that's that, you know. So. Yeah, my, one of my favourite Lucano experiences was watching a Laurel and Hardy short uh, for one of the retrospectives. And uh, last year, I think it was, I, I followed all the Verhoeven retrospective as well, and that was really oh, good. Yeah, I remember the tourner. I think it was in 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was back then. Last yeah. year. Nah, it was, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, really. So, yeah, yeah, always okay. great to be back. Totally agree. Okay, so um, you're going to give us your favourite film book or, or a film book recommendation. Let's call it that because we don't want to be absolutist about this. So, your your recommended film book, please. My recommended film book is a film book by a director I love, and I'm sure many of your listeners and fans will agree with me. Werner Herzog, Conquest of the Useless. It's a diary of the uh, well, <laughs> of that terrific, tragic, shambolic shooting of um, Fitzgeraldo. So we're talking about Herzog going to the jungle in Peru and writing in what turned out to be a bit of a Talmud-like notebook because he um, he was very concerned about space, and so legend has it he wrote everything in a notebook and because he was concerned he was going to run out of pages very soon and very fast, he would write extremely small. And it's just terrific. I mean, like when you think about books and films, about what it's like to, to shoot a film and what the behind-the-scene um, lifestyle is, I think it's just it's ridiculous. It's super insightful, piercing, really, really funny. And um, I just love Herzog. I love Herzog as a writer as much as a director. I love his writings. Um, one of my favorite stories, I don't know whether you've heard this, um, it's the encounter between Herzog and Chatwin. Uh, now, they met in Australia, of all places, because Chatwin was there, and if I'm not mistaken, he was there to shoot Where the Green Ants Dream, and, um, and Chatwin was there to finish up some work on the song lines. And so they met up, and this is a phenomenal story. Uh, Herzog talks about it in, the, um, in another book, another great book, uh, Herzog, A Guide for the Perplexed, uh, Conversations with Cronin, I think. Paul, and, Paul Cronin. Uh, right. It's a phenomenal book. Again, check that one out. I'm sure you have. Um, and it's just phenomenal. The two of them meet in this hotel room and Herzog says, listen, for every... Kind of like annoyingly, he's kind mm. of annoyed about it because for every story he had, Chatwing had three. So, mm. I mean, like, I, I'm so annoyed that there's no official record of what that encounter was like and all those stories they shared. But the two of them were phenomenal. And, um, and that's one of the reasons why I love Herzog so much. He was a fabulist, as much as Chatwin, really. And uh, you can see why the two of them would connect so well. Yeah, absolutely. There's always that sense of you're never quite sure if either of them are really telling the God's honest truth. Absolutely. But that's but, the point. And isn't that fascinating? Because in, in a way, I think that Chatwin's idea of representing reality and you know some transcendent reality, meaning very, very close to Herzog's idea of the ecstatic truth, Right, this idea that there is a, huh, should we put it like a truer reality that doesn't necessarily need to um, comply with what we see, with what we can touch, but you know, art and um, films and books can sort of approximate that sense of yeah, that sense of reality and ecstatic truth. And I think that the two of them were, yeah, kindred spirits. And for fans of Herzog, there is, of course, a bunch of his books are coming out soon. He's, he's already written a novel which has been published about a Japanese soldier, which was recently the subject of a film as well, about a year ago. It's a, the famous story, of a uh, true story, of a Japanese soldier who doesn't realise the Second World War is over and stays in the jungle for like... Onoda. Onoda, right. yes, yes, yeah, yes exactly. Film. Yeah. Onoda was the Can. film, and Onoda is the name of the soldier. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think this novel is called called something like Twilight's Forest or okay. Twilight's Jungle um, and it's really good I've read it it's a really good uh, book and I think he's also got um, currently being prepared with Paul Cronin I think a version of his autobiography that he's gonna release so those are a couple to, to look forward to have you ever interviewed Herzog I met him in Cannes and I like? He, he was amazing. He was at uh, Meet Your Heroes kind of okay. encounter where, um, yeah, where I asked him, uh, I, I just said, you know, I'm very sorry to, to, to interrupt you, Mr. Herzog, but I wanted to express I'm a great fan of your work. And he, he said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and uh, I told him I was working and I was a scriptwriter and all this sort of stuff. He said, then you are not a fan. You are a colleague. That's a, that's a great, honestly, that's a great, yeah. Great line. Yeah. So I was absolutely made up. And he did say 
apropos our conversation, he did say that he thought his books would be would outlast his movies, which I thought was a was an interestingly you know, as you say, there was an ecstatic truth in there rather than the actual truth. Sure. No, I mean like and there's one book of his which I haven't read. Um but I would love to, and it is the chronicle of his journey on foot, talking about another Chatwin and her connection there. Of course, yep. they love traveling on foot. And from Munich to Paris, you aware of this? When um, yeah. there was a, yeah, right, a director, a very, very old lady who was, um, was essentially about to die, and he promised her that she would survive, and he traveled on foot from Munich to Paris, and by the time he got to Paris, of course, she was feeling better. Um, so yeah, I would love to read that too. There's so many great books by Herzog I haven't read and I'm really, really dying to read. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I just think he is a, he's a font of constant inspiration and ideas. Um, and of course, anybody re- interested in uh, Werner Herzog's uh, Rehearsing the Unexpected by Paul Cronin, uh, you can, there's an episode with Paul Cronin uh, of, in Writers on Film, so you can uh, listen to that. Fantastic. I was uh, about to ask you. I was about to say, you've talked to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Paul's, uh, Paul was a great guest. Uh, it's one of, uh, it's, it's a fascinating episode. Absolutely fascinating. Right, right. I'll make sure to check it out. Yeah, thank you. But, well, thank Thank you, Leo, and uh, and hopefully we'll be seeing your writing uh, from the festival and others. You will. Always a pleasure. Thank you, mate. Great. There you go. See, see how easy it is. No, it's brilliant. Thank you. I'm talking to Joseph Owens. Joseph, what are you? Uh, who are you writing for? So this year at Locarno, I'm writing for We Love Cinema, free reviews for them, and I'm going to be writing a dispatch for Photogenie and perhaps a roundup for Cinema Year Zero. Cinema Year Zero? Who's, who's that? I've not heard so of that. So that's a publication that was helmed by my friend Ben Flanagan and Tom Atkinson, and it's an online publication that's been going for one or two years now, and they are doing... Uh, an issue next that is on something to do with like uh, revitalization or coming back in some way the return um, so I thought I'd do a piece from Locarno and try and feed those themes into everything I watched and then retrospectively decide that that's what those films were about so yeah it's good it's good publication um, I think they paid 20 pounds Per, per and how's your look I know you haven't been here for very many days but how's, how's it been so far um, it's been it's been lovely it's been really good so I got here two days ago now and I got here in the afternoon I went straight into straight into the films so I saw a perfect day for Caribou a film by Jeff Rutherford starring Charlie Plummer which was peaceful meditative and then a film the film that I saw after that Medusa Deluxe was neither of those things it was kinetic very knowingly deliberately exhaustively kinetic and then yesterday I slept in <laughs> had a big breakfast for, and did my itinerary for the festival so I should always do it before but I did it on the second day and then we are, we are not machines Joseph no we're not I'm, so, I'm, I'm completely the opposite very fleshy very human ciao that's the same um, and the first film I saw yesterday was All That Heaven Allows oh the, the, the Cirque retrospective so way back when when I used to come to Locarno I used to just cover all the new films all the competition and never do anything fun, never see the retrospectives. Now, in my later life, in my old age, I'm able to do what I want more. So Sadder but wiser. Sadder but wiser, exactly. So I, I went to see the circuit too, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's the earth circuit, I suppose. It's the definitive circle, the most famous, the most popular. But it was just brilliant. It was such a balm, such a tonic. You go out going, 
I wish every film I was going to see at this festival is going to be as good as that, which is a silly thing to think, but it does raise your expectations. That's, that's a danger retrospective. I find the same thing with Venice classics. That I go and see them and then I walk out thinking, why, why aren't we all watching Lubitsch comedies? <laughs> exactly. So there was that, and it was introduced by John Halliday, who wrote a book in the early 70s, Cirque on Cirque. Um, and then became, he was an Irish guy and he's like, you know, became this sort of uh, South Asian historian. So his first ever book was about film and then all his other books were about, afterwards about like Japanese-American relations. But, you know, it's an incredible like sort of switch, I suppose, to go from like a, a film study to, to sort of Chinese-American history. It sounds a little bit like Glenn Frankel did the opposite. He was sort of working as a, a foreign press uh, for the Washington Post and then retired and became a film writer. I really like trajectories like that for yeah. sort of journalists slash academics slash whoever. I think it's, it's really interesting. I think it brings brilliant perspectives on things. Uh, that kind of interdisciplinary uh, sort of uh, approach. But yeah, he came out and, you know, he's sort of old guy now. He had a sort of knee brace and he sort of helped onto the stage, but he just spoke so, you know, sort of in paragraphs, very articulately, very eloquently. He's like 83 now. Um, and yeah, so he introduced the film, lovely bit of chat before his relationship with Cirque, or his memories about the film. And then, yeah, watch that. And then afterwards, went and saw Tommy Guns, which is the Portuguese film by Carlos Conceição. And um, yeah, that was interesting. A lot of people have been recommending it to me, you included. Guy, Jess, they all said it was quite good. And I thought it was okay. I thought it was interesting things about it. The thing that struck me the most was there's some stills in the film. And they kind of like look like Caravaggio paintings. They have these, you know, they've got a real sense of Kiyos Hero and all that sort of thing. Which, you know, not hardly novel, but was striking at least. And that's a film, yeah, that starts off with this kind of it's about Portuguese colonialism. It's about the last, the year before Angolan independence. And it starts off very kind of ethnographically and it's depicting, you know, sort of communities in you know, the wilderness as it's perceived by the, the kind of Portuguese. Uh, and then it focuses on these young men and the kind of, you know, the usual things, the, the bursts of violence mixed with the kind of long spells of tedium and sort of sort of simmering machismo and then there's some sort of intriguing slash homoeroticism slash homoeroticism as it, as it ever was um, so there's some and then yeah it sort of develops in some sort of interesting way again there's this sort of pockmarked by violence so you never get too sort of comfortable with the sort of you know beautiful landscapes and sort of uh, sort of uh, elements of nature so yeah and it's interesting and then yeah it becomes a kind of there's elements of horror and the supernatural and that sort of comes in to sort of uh, finesse or refine or recapitulate these ideas colonialism imperialism violence what does it all mean so that was okay and then after that i saw stone turtle which you've reviewed john um which is another film that starts with this kind of image of violence and then kind of returns to it throughout and the whole film really is about it's a it's a indonesian film yeah, I think so. It's, it's set in Malaysia. Malaysia. But I think it's, it's okay. a co-production. So they, the woman lives on this very sort of remote island, has to get the boat to the mainland often to do anything, you know, in terms, in terms Hello. of... Hello. Gratitude. Sorry, I was just looking at the rest. Okay. So just, um, you know, again, it's a, it's, it's a film that uses different sort of genres and techniques to articulate sort of violence and then this film is much more um, male violence specifically or patriarchal violence and that theme is returned to in different ways and then her, the, this woman's response she get you know there's a young child in it as well who she looks after who she has a kind of slightly ambiguous relationship with uh, which is then revealed later in the film and it's about how do these women respond to this kind of overarching enveloping fear of male violence and then yeah as you said in your review there's a weird kind of groundhog day effect that they use to sort of accentuate these ideas um and yeah some, some very pretty images in that as well um yeah i, I liked it I, I the funny thing that we were both talking about before we started recording was how quite a lot of art films now are sort of subsuming or employing sort of generic conventions 
I don't know whether they're doing this to make it more audience friendly or more appealing or, or being more playful and postmodern. Um, a, a, a guest of the, the podcast a, a few, a, quite a few months ago, Adam Nyman, referred to this as the gentrification of genre. And I thought that was kind of a, quite an interesting uh, sort of idea that the, there's a sort of bourgeois move towards co-opting genre, like, you know, middle class people loving football all of a sudden. I mean, that's a lovely turn of phrase. So, so it must be true. It must be even, true, even yeah. If it's, if it's elegant, true. it's true. That's, yeah. that's it. Yeah, maybe that's, that there's something in that. I mean, I don't know if they, you just go through periods of cinemas or perhaps films on the festival circuit where it goes through kind of cycles, um, what people program, what, what filmmakers make. Um, and perhaps they, we got to a point where we're saturated with a kind of monotone social realism or a monotone uh, kind of naturalism um, and what starts as perhaps you know these kind of very generous sort of slow ethnographic responses then sort of reformulate themselves as yeah genre films as employing horror supernatural or revenge thriller kind of tropes um, and that makes us you know rethink about these kind of grand themes of you know humanity and life death, um, colonialism, whatever else, um, in different ways. But yeah, what, what's it doing? I suppose that's the question, like what, what is this use of genre? What is the, what, how is it servicing these stories? Um, probably helps to get financing. Helps to get financing, it's probably very practical reasons why, why they do it. Um, but I suppose it's, it's, it's interesting insofar as like, it's like film making asking itself like what what tools do we have as filmmakers are we supposed are we trying again it's classic are we just trying to be mimetic and reflect reality in some sort of earnest or steer away or are we trying to employ you know the techniques of cinema as it has existed across you know anything that gets us away from the dardan brothers (laughs) is fine with me well yeah there hasn't been many there hasn't been much of that that i've seen here for sure um there was a film called uh saturn bowling Oh, so which I, kind of dipped into that sort of realm and it was just so awful. So oh, I didn't it's like see my that. least favourite film of the yeah. But it's got an interesting synopsis, so what, what was wrong with that film? Um, it was about an unhappy rapist and, um, yeah, it was like, boo-hoo, I've raped someone again. So yeah. I, I just found it. It was deplorably, as of many um, social realist films, it, it was actually really generic mm-hmm. and just didn't do genre very well you know policeman will have a radio conversation with dispatch uh, which is basically you know um, pc exposition comes on and tells us what what to think of a certain character so the film was you know so it's kind of got this very dubious politics or this kind of dubious sort of you know desire to show a certain perspective i.e in this case the rapist perspective by the sounds of it but then i suppose that could be interesting. It could. It could. Theoretically, it could. I think we've seen enough unhappy rapists <laughs> in film <laughs> well, that's for it. a while. It's not like they're, <laughs> you know, won't somebody speak up for the unhappy rapist well, in society? But it sounds like there's a kind of incompetence there as well, a kind of lack of sort of yeah. nuance or a kind of skill or a sort of trust in the audience, which then undermines any possibly interesting perspective in what it wanted to Yeah, show. and there are, I mean, I don't mean to be un, un, ungenerous, but there seem to be these hot topics that you, uh, the buckets that you have that you dip in, your hand in, you pull yeah. it out, and it's suicide, or it's rape, or it's uh, abortion. Sure. And, and I'm not entirely, again, this is being a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a bad faith argument, but I'm, I'm unsure that these people are really engaging in this sure. stuff. Rather than they're just thinking, well, this is something that will just, as we said with the genre, this will get me funding. You know? Sure. Well, what, I mean, on the subject of something like abortion, we've, we've had some very good films over the past few years, which now look intensely prescient. Yeah. Which weren't the one, after one the Venice, fact, were, one Venice, but uh, were in, the happening French film. Yeah. Well, that, that's it, and there's never rarely, sometimes, always. A superb well. film. Yeah. yeah. And and those films were good and you sort of took them for granted for just being good on their own terms but now they have a kind of political precedence which is something different to films that are aware of abortion now being this incredibly central debate for, for, I'm and gonna, then being I'm up gonna, there I'm going to give you a counter argument though 
as great as those films are and as necessary as those films are, don't they rather, um, uh, don't they reproduce this constant paradigm in which we only talk about abortion as in how difficult it is, mm. how it's often the solution to abuse, how, um, it, you know, where's the film about <laughs> happy abortions? Where's the, where, where's the normalization of abortion as just a part of, of somebody's life rather than, sure. and, you know, for, Juno is a very good example of this where, uh, it, it deals with teenage pregnancy and ultimately we don't have an abortion we have somebody choosing to have the baby Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation They said yes And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts They said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, and it's seen as this big weighty question, uh, rather than something that some sometimes could just be as i say quite a common part of a lot of women's lives yeah rather than you know the climax of, of their whole existence exactly. and they're only defined by that abortion it's, it's as if else. queer cinema was stuck constantly going oh god it's terrible to be queer sure. you know it's that same without showing of... the kind of the multifaceted complexity of that kind of existence precisely listen to us guys talking about oh, abortion it's such such, a, such authority what i would say it's the counter counter i suppose is that those films that discuss abortion in that way, they're, they're, obviously it's about the abortion, the act itself, but yeah. what those films, through their sort of, you know, the act of struggle and the act of, what that's trying to reflect is more this kind of, this, the structural systemic stuff around abortion, which is impossible to detach from the act itself. So I suppose the way in which they show the kind of relentless misery is the kind of way in which abortion is you know, institutionalised, is controlled by state power. So I suppose that's why there's that tendency to make it seem like this anguish climax of everyone's lives. Mm. Because it's like there is this kind of nefarious political power that holds, you know, the judgment on whether people can or can't have it. Um, but yeah, there's something to be said, even perhaps, you know, not just for as the subject of an interesting film or as something that could be, you know, rendered in aesthetically interesting ways. There's just something to be said for the probably political potency of, yeah, showing someone just having an abortion, it being like a kind of thing that improves their lives immeasurably or it's just a part of their lives. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's treated in a kind of, uh, uh, perhaps more indifferent way than, you know, in the same way in which the person having it feels when they have it. Just like part of their lives, yeah, and, and, yeah. and, and treated with a kind of indifference. I suppose the problem with that is that it's very hard to be indifferent about it, given what's happened in America recently. It feels like every treatment needs a kind of harsh political potency. Yeah, my, so far as it. I guess my my thing is, if culturally we've been a bit more open to different interpretations, we might not have the debate that we're having. Well, quite, and that's the political potency of them bringing it, but bringing it in now that kind of yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, the French film that won at Cannes was a period film uh, set in the early '60s, so it was actually about look how ter the bad old days, and then it became a contemporary film that could easily have been set in an, uh, you know Alabama or somewhere. Um, Favorite or recommended film book, Joseph? Okay. Just a recommended film book. Doesn't have to be a favorite. No but sight and sound top ten <laughs> anxiety here. Well, you know. So first of all, get the caveats in. I am. I'm. A, I'm a, unfortunately a literary scholar, so I deal mostly in, in literary books. But um, some film books that I have read bits of recently never go so far as to read cover to cover but I did get the Christmas uh, transcendental style on the film which is the Paul Schrader book um, I had a, 
obviously it's quite seminal text, that's the word you probably use for it. Um, it's interesting because I think in the, the edition that I got, he updated it like five years ago or something. And in the prologue, Paul Schrader put, or perhaps the he puts in a kind of Venn diagram of uh, slow cinema filmmakers. So you've got like the kind of more arty side of it, the art installation side of it, and you've got the kind of festival circuit stuff, so you like signing Lang and things like that. And it's one of these very heuristic, crude diagrams, and yet that still somehow feels immensely kind of helpful as a starting point for thinking about different filmmakers and their relationship, in this case, to slow cinema, but really you're talking about cinema. So, you know, you can split it in different ways, you call it narrative cinema, non-narrative cinema, slow cinema, I mean, you might as well have fast cinema then if you've got that. Um, which obviously it's a very tired term, isn't it? Slow cinema. But that's why I thought it'd be interesting to go to a kind of sort of foundational text in many ways for thinking about, you know, epiphany and revelation and slowness. Um, so that was, that was quite interesting for me to I was thinking of it, when I got the book, I was thinking of it in terms of thinking about, I was going to write a sort of postdoc project on slow cinema and climate change. I thought that'd be quite like a... Uh, an interesting thing, I, I used to write a lot on sovereignty, and sovereignty was about, uh, in, a, in a certain way, about sovereignty, so state, state authority. I used to write it in terms of thinking about the state of exception, uh, and basically how, you know, power is the power to decide, so to suspend all normal laws at the drop of the hat, to reinstitute order. Um, so, the language of emergency is now obviously entered into the climate change debate because mm. it's now we're at a cat catastrophic. We're past it to be. So, it, climate emergency, state of emergency. It seems interesting to bring in the language of sovereignty into thinking about climate change because obviously, state authority is what holds a lot of the keys to solving any you know kind of climate catastrophe or climate emergency that's coming. So, it's interesting to me to think about. You know, part of the reason that perhaps we've been slow to think about climate change in the past is that it's been something that's been gradual. It has been gradual. It doesn't feel gradual. Not anymore. anymore but no. it has felt gradual in the past. Um, and I was thinking about different... Like how, you know, is, is, is this kind of slow cinema approach to climate change? Is that something that reveals more about our climate catastrophe now than something like a disaster movie for instance where a volcano erupts or the, you know, the day after tomorrow or something like that where there's this kind of event you know I feel like any cinema that's about the climate is always seeking the event and perhaps we might think about that don't look up which is obviously the, the meteor is you know is, is the kind of supposedly the metaphor for the climate catastrophe but that's it cinema requires the event to articulate climate catastrophe or climate change and I think maybe perhaps to recapitulate that you think about it you know cinema without event like what does that look like is it just you know cinema cinematic depictions of just you know bucolic landscapes slowly deteriorating or like, what does it look like you know and there's a few films that I was thinking about in terms of uh, James Benning's Ten Skies which had a book come out quite recently so that's been sort of pulled back in so Erica Balsam fireflies that's what it is so I was thinking about yeah look is there different ways to fit climate change and I remember BBC4 several years ago used to do these kind of Lapland things that used to have the kind of just show you know people trekking on their you know reindeer across Lapland for hours and hours and hours and hours and it was like a BBC4 slow slow series and I thought mm. it's interesting thinking about it as like a kind of TV project as well as a film project like I'm thinking about like what, what's audience responses to that how do they respond to how it deals with climate? Obviously, something like David Attenborough is like the the jaw, you know, go-to for most people when they think about nature and climate and everything else, and it's folded into one, which is quite a curious thing as well because obviously they're linked, they're interlinked, but it's just like who's the guy we go to to think about anything about the climate and nature? It's this guy, David Attenborough, with these very kind of you know masterfully shot and cut episodes of you know nature and and and, and, and animals and the climate it's like is that a helpful way of thinking about climate I don't know but I think he's been very self-critical of, of, of saying you know my programs have contributed to a complacency because 
they suggest the wild is still out there and uh, you know it's less and less true yeah well that, that's exactly it so to cut a long story short I went to Paul Schrader for the, <laughs> for the answers <laughs> to this because mainly that helpful diagram made me look at all the filmmakers on it you know from Siring Lang to James Benning to all these other people and to go what does that mode of filmmaking in all its multiplicity because let's not pretend that, that they can all be bracketed in that simple way sure. but to use that heuristic of these types of filmmakers who use images and you know long takes and you know we can try and we can try and sort of itemize it but you, mm. it's a kind of you know aesthetic approach isn't it um, and, and what that could offer perhaps thinking about sovereignty and thinking about climate change so Paul Schrader's Transcendental Style on Film um, and the other thing that I read re- recently was a short chapter by Christian Metz who is you know legendary film theorist who I kind of didn't really know much about and he had something very interesting about watching films like bracket syntagmas like the kind of grammar of film and as I think as a literary student anything that talks about you know the grammar of things kind of perhaps catches my eye but without really totally up fully understanding it I thought it was just a very interesting way to think about you know the way in which you know image selection shot selection sequencing how that works what that does to the viewer what that does you know to an audience, how that makes us perceive images. Very theoretical, but very interesting. So do check that out. So Christian Metz, bracket syntagmas. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Joseph. And I hope you have a great, uh, for the enjoy the rest of your festival. Oh, I will indeed. Thanks so much for having me, John. Super duper. Going to keep in all the stuff about the coffee as well. Yes, yeah, that's a lovely sort of naturalistic. Yeah, Nana Frank Rasmussen. Uh, we're here in Locarno, uh, the lovely press lounge in Locarno, uh, sitting on wicker chairs. <laughs> uh, how's your festival been so far? I know you've only just arrived, so. Well, it's been good. I've seen one film, but it was a very good film. I like the atmosphere here a lot. It's my first time, and but I've been longing to come here for a long, long time. I've only heard good things about the festival. So yeah, I'm looking forward to experience it all. And the film was uh, I Have Electric Dreams by a Belgian director, I think. Yes, it was Belgian friends and from Costa Rica and taking place in Costa Rica. So, yeah, it was a very beautifully shot coming of age story. Um, very loyal to the characters and, yeah, yeah, beautiful first, first film. Yeah, a good way yeah. of breaking into the festival. Exactly. Excellent, excellent. And who do you write for? No. I write for a Danish daily newspaper called Politiken, the best newspaper in Denmark, of Great. course. <laughs> yeah, and I've um, been a film critic for 15 or so years, writing wow. about films, traveling, festivals, so on. And you were saying you, earlier that you have a, a good relationship with your readers, there's a lot of back and forth interactivity with them, yeah? Yeah, I mean, especially now that I switched to Politiken a couple of years ago and my readers or the readers of the newspaper, they, they have opinions on what is written and I, they're educated and mostly well-mannered people. <laughs> Not all of them, but... Uh, What's the most controversial subjects of recent times? Um, I would say, well, I've always been a feminist and I've not been shy to to write about feminist issues and of course that rubs people the wrong way, some people, but um, so yeah, I've had comments on that, um, being a woman writing about films also could be controversial, uh, some years ago at least, now it's not so much, but um, and then if you talk about animals, oh, really? <laughs> people would react on that, yeah. Oh, but, animals is a hot, hot button yeah, well, subject. But don't don't talk shite about animals. Then you'll, you know. <laughs> well, there's a Netflix uh, program called "Don't Fuck with Cats." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and and I'm very I'm I'm a cat lady, so so I definitely sympathise with that. <laughs> but it's just funny that there are so certain uh, subjects you shouldn't really you should be careful about. It's the royal family in Denmark. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't criticise those people and then of course uh, animal welfare is a tricky topic 
Right. Okay. Okay. I'll be sure next time I'm pitching to a Danish publication yeah. to to not include my uh, aren't the Danish royal family as thick as dogs uh, headline. No, I think I think you could have some fans if you did that as well. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you a recommended book for our readers, our listeners. Damn it. I mean, well, your readers. If you're listening to a podcast called Writers on Film, I'm guessing your readers as well. Yeah. So the book I want to mention is uh, Fritz Lang biography by Lotte Eisner that I read many, many years ago, but it was just really an eye-opener on how to write about films, both academically, but also in a way that everybody could read it and get something out of it. And uh, yeah, I found it very interesting and I just... It was a page turner. Right, right. Yeah, which I really enjoy because lots of books and films can be either too anecdote, uh, too many anecdotes, or too loose in a way, and uh, not so clever maybe. And then on the other hand, you find the very academic work, which can be hard to you know get through if you're not an academic. Mm. So I like the middle ground when you find the middle ground there and you combine. Yeah, yeah, some sort of form, formal sort of structure, but no mentions of Deleuze. <laughs> well, I don't mind mentioning of Deleuze, but but not three chapters on Deleuze. Right, right, right. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So it's it's not an uh, academic bashing. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not doing that. But uh, uh, I just like it when you can pull all your put all your knowledge into a book. And not be shy about all the things that you know, and of course, but then write it in a way that is welcoming, mm. I would say, mm. for the readers. Accessible. Accessible, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Accessible, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. And um, amongst sort of writers, because you said you're working for this daily newspaper and you're... Um, are there any sort of journalists who you've also sort of been followed or read even, even before you became a journalist that inspired you? Yeah, well, there's a, obviously there's a Danish film critic um, who happens to work at the same newspaper as I do now, and I've read him many, many, many years, and his name is Kim Skotte, and uh, he's been a film critic for many years. Um, and I remember reading him uh, when I was just a teenager and just follow every, everything that he, he, uh, he did and, you know, reading his uh, journals from Cannes and other festivals and he just opened up the world of cinema for me in many mm. ways. So, yeah, that's, he's been a big influence. And then, of course, also other Danish critics that have been uh, reading and then nowadays, I would say, I always have this pleasure of looking up what Peter Bradshaw thought of a film mm. from The Guardian. Because um, sometimes I really agree and sometimes I really disagree. And I like that. I like that. You, I feel like I have a dialogue with him sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not stalking you, Peter Bradshaw. <laughs> but I don't want it to sound creepy. But I like the fact that you can have like an internal dialogue with another uh, writer. Um, you don't have to act on it. You just, you, you know, you, you get inspired and you have to sharpen your own arguments on why you like a film or why you don't like a film when you read someone else mm. with other opinions. Uh, yeah, so, so of course, and then tons of others, of course, that I read and festivals and so on. But yeah, I would say he's probably the one that's best well known. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like that's so such a great idea as well. If I tend to agree with you, but when I disagree, I'm sort of even more interested. You know? Yeah, my ears perk up. Ah, oh, okay, exactly. you don't yeah. like this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. brilliant. And are you looking forward to any films uh, on the program, or how how long are you here for? Are you here for the until the end now? Yeah, I'm here until almost the end. And there's a Norwegian film in the competition in the program that I'm looking forward to. I'm, I tend to follow Nordic films, Scandinavian mm -hmm. films in general. Um, and since there are only a Finnish film and a Norwegian film here, I'm definitely going to watch those two. Oh, is it the one about the sisters? Is that yeah. the Norwegian one? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, a young female director and I, yeah I, I think it on paper it looks interesting you never know but uh, yeah I'm, I'm going to watch that brilliant yeah I saw that yesterday but I will leave yeah. you ah, I'll leave ooh, the tabula rasa <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant okay thank you so much Nana it's such a pleasure talking to you you're welcome
Tom Hardiman. <laughs> Thank you for speaking to me. Uh, we're at the Locarno Film Festival. We're actually, we're actually in a quiet place for once, which is, uh, which is really good. Tom, uh, you're going to recommend some books and then we're going to talk a little bit about the festival. So first of all, let's start with the books. What, what books would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, the books, obviously there's a lot that comes straight to mind. There's books from your childhood, there's books from recently, there's books you've just discovered and you're like, how the hell do I not know this? I think there's one that my brother gave to me when I was like 12, which is um, the history of cinematography, the history of European cinematography specifically. And it's by Sven Lyqvist, although I, I assume you didn't write every word in it. I think it's a collaborative thing. Mm. But the beginning gives you like a history from Napoleon through to, I don't know. And weirdly, I've read this at different points in my life. I definitely looked at the pictures when I got it. Then I started to read it. And then I started to read, there's a lot of stuff on camera and like, you know, it does the history of Ari pretty much in the last bit of it. And it's kind of, I definitely only read that when I started making stuff. But then it also has like just these lists of films and they're, I think now, because it was printed, I think in 2001, and it has a little bit of an issue that it's male dominated, which is a bit of a shame now. I think they should do probably reappraise it a little bit. At the same time, there's so many great films in there. I discovered, you know, half of my film knowledge through that book. It's, it's magical. And then a second book, um, I went, just before we started shooting my first film, Medusa's Deluxe, like, I went in and read quite a lot of filmmakers' books, because I just thought, I better do, you know, I better, just in case there's something I'm going to pick up. And, you know, the real, the real killers there, Alexander McKendrick's book is incredible, and I, I'm a massive fan of Sweet Smell of Success. He wrote it for all the people he was teaching, I think, at CalArts at the time. I think it's CalArts, but it might be like some other, I'm not from California, it's one of those. Mm. And uh, it's just direct, to the point, it's not arrogant in any way, it's not fluffy, it's just a really good tool kit for any filmmaker, I think, it's a brilliant book. Um, and then on a similar note, Sidney Lumet's book, which I think everyone's probably going to talk about because, again, it's just direct. It's very, I, I love his films, they mean a hell of a lot to me, so it's kind of, that's nice, you're going through films you like. And he actually talks about some of the ones which maybe I don't like so much in detail and you suddenly realise you're learning more from that than the ones you love. But there's incredible moments in that book, like I, I'm sure everyone's seen Dog Day Afternoon, talking through how they shot the phone call specifically with Al Pacino. They only did two takes. There's two cameras in black tents because obviously they had to change the film because the, the take they were doing was longer than the roll of film at the time. But he knew he was only going to go for it twice. He knew he was going to intercut it so he would have a moment to, you know, to cut away and make sure it's not a problem. They've switched stock. But they basically built a whole tent outside the scene. They filmed it effectively all in one. And then when he was so knackered, Al Pacino said, right, that's it, never going to do another one. And he, not tricked him, but he kind of said, we're only going to do one. He's like, actually, you could do another. And the exhausted one is the one in the film. Mm. And when you know that and you watch it back, it's an unbelievable scene. I mean, it's an unbelievable film. I, I, that film blew me away. And the Pierre Huy remake, actually, is what introduced me to the film. Anyway, now we're on to the last one. I've just randomly started going through all Paul and Kale's um, books. Just, just recently, it's a bit of a random one. It's, I don't know quite why, but um, I picked up the Citizen Kane one and she, I think I must have picked it up after watching Mank, and she argues the case for his involvement and the writing method. And I know it's been argued against by other people. It's, I think it's kind of an infamous book. At the same time, it's like, it, it's high level writing. Like it's really, she's serious about what she's doing. She's really kind of interrogating it. Times have moved on. But like, it's, it's nice to kind of read someone who's really gunning for it and you feel the energy in the writing and it's quite special. I think those are the ones that come straight to my head and I'm only just saying, you know, ones which I've, some of them I've read recently actually, there's a thousand more out there. But um, yeah, I'll give a shout out for Donald Barthelme who's nothing to do with film, mm. but like he's my kind of, everything I do creatively is linked to him. He's mm. my hero. He's the writer I respect above anybody, and he's, I think he's a kind of quintessential postmodernist writer. He's kind mm. of collage, um, humour, he's kind of topical, he's flippant. Everything he does blows me away. And actually, of all the writers who've ever had any influence on me, he's the one. And I, I would, I'm like an evangelist for him. If anyone reads him, it would make me extremely happy. That's brilliant. I mean, it's also good to hear sort of people in film talking about uh, novelists because mm. Werner Herzog, I remember, finishes his masterclass with read, read, read. That's his yeah. advice to young directors. Just read as much as you can. Definitely. Like, that makes all the difference. Like, it's kind of... I was always a weird reader. I think uh, 
first, I, I, read, I, <laughs> I read a lot of books about talking animals up until like a weirdly old age of like 14. <laughs> so I've got a thing for talking animals. I've read every book that has egg for kids. And I think like weirdly, um, Belger, the Sylvia Plath. Mm. It, sorry, have I got the wrong book? No, yeah, the Belger. Belger. Yeah, yeah, Belger. Sorry, that was the first like serious book I read. I don't, I can't even explain why, and it had a massive effect on me. Then I went Catch Me Two was probably the first book of like fifteen, sixteen, where you're like, oh wow, and that mm. blew me away. And then you start to, I, I kind of feel like my reading journey is it's massively linked to writing. To be honest, like mm. Dave Foster Wallace had a big effect. George Saunders more recently had a big effect, and um, yeah, I guess more recently. I sort of came across Bluets and the Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, and that was just had a massive effect on me. She's an, just an unbelievable writer. I think she comes from a kind of poetry background. I think she's got like an interest in classicism in some sense, but then it's like, I mean, it's essentially it's about sexual politics and it goes, yeah, it goes heavy straight away. It's into some pretty intense stuff and it's just fantastic. It just blows your mind from the first sentence and yeah, it just had a really huge effect. I kept it just in my bag for weeks for some reason, just, on me, walking around, thinking, I'll keep going, I'll keep going, and I went back and read it a few times because it's very short. So yeah, mm. you can dip in and dip out, but yeah, prepare yourself. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't pull its punches. Right, right. Oh, well, I'll put that on my list. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. And so, what about your experience here in Locarno? So you're here with your first debut feature film, first and debut. There's a bit of tautology <laughs> for you, um, Locarno. Uh, how's your experience been? It's unbelievable. I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, you, you make stuff every step of the way and you're very surprised. We were just talking about imposter syndrome. That's mm. obviously mm. that. You're kind of going, oh my God, people are taking a risk on me. They're actually going, like, it's amazing. And you're just so, you're just so happy. You get on stage. I've never spoken in front of like, I mean, I spoke like 8,000 people virtually. And two, mm. It was a bit of kind of thunder and lightning. It was a bit of a mad event. But like, you get up there, you're trying to just, trying to be yourself at the same time. You get asked questions and all you can think to say is thank you. But you know like mm. no one wants to hear thank you, thank you, thank you, because it's dull as anything. You want to say something a bit more interesting, but there's nothing else there. Like mm. all I am is thankful. I'm thankful to like the people who gave us the money, the people who've got us here, and I've just tried to enjoy it as much as possible. That's been the main thing. It's been pretty special. Like they've got, you know, movie who we were working with brought all the cast over. They've just gone absolutely wild. Uh, Robbie, who shot the film, Robbie Ryan, he's a good friend and he's flown in like specially for it, and that really really meant a lot actually. We, we spent all day virtually yesterday together and it was just like, brings back great memories because he's an incredible person. So yeah, I mean, it really is, it's been special for me, yeah. Right, and well, hopefully we're gonna see the film, I think it's gonna get a release in England around about 2023, uh, start yeah. next year. Yeah, 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 it is. It's, uh, I think we'll get, you know, a nice few weeks and mm. anyone who goes to see it, I'll just be, Incredibly thankful. The film itself, uh, it's a murder mystery set in a competitive hairdressing competition. I think it's a good bit of fun. I think mm -hmm. people will come, you know, it, it goes it goes sort of at a rate of knots. And yeah, if anyone wants to have a good time, please come by and I'll be very thankful. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom, for speaking no, to us. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the time. So that was my Locarno trip and my Locarno special. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, um, I certainly had a great time at the festival. I always enjoy uh, Locarno. It's it's got a beautiful vibe. It's be it's really well run. It's uh, the people are all great there. Uh, next week uh, I will be going to Sarajevo Film Festival. So hopefully I'll pro I'll produce another similar episode uh, while I'm away. And then it's going to be uh, on to Venice. So it's going to be a bit of a jam-packed, festival-strewn um, series of podcasts uh, coming up. But hopefully I'll also get the opportunity to interview some writers along the way. Um, and if not, I'll just take a break until I have enough interviews uh, to, to continue. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks, to uh, all my guests, also to Ali Howard for the art, Elliot Atkins for the music, and thanks most of all to you, the listener.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.